You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world. Plus, tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. It's Classic Constantine, and you know that it's a good one, because it begins on a ship. A ship you've maybe heard of. I hope you've heard of. The HMS Beagle. This is the ship that, in 1831, carried a young naturalist named Charles Darwin into the pantheon of science. For nearly five years, it ferried him around the world, from Australia to South America to, most famously, Galapagos. The birds, the lizards, the insects, the fish that Darwin cataloged started him towards his great idea, which he formally formulated between 1836 and 1838 back in England. He kept his discovery secret for the next 20 years, until the publication of On the Origin of Species in 1859. In it, Darwin explained how all animals and plants alive on Earth today must have descended from some small number of common ancestors, and that we are all placed upon a branching tree of life, pruned and split by mutation and natural selection. Gosh, I love Darwin. I assume you don't need a lot of convincing about how brilliant he was, but it's still worth a little consideration. Darwin's theory of evolution is the cornerstone of the life sciences. When he came up with it, he knew it was something big, something world-changing, but he couldn't possibly have known just how prescient his idea truly was. Because he didn't know, for example, how neatly his theory would fit with archaeological discoveries in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, strata that contained fossils arranged by eons of advancement. He didn't know that there was such a thing as DNA, and that sequencing the genetic codes of animals would reveal a direct line of ancestry perfectly attuned with his observations. But if you really want to be baffled, And amazed, there is one other big thing that Darwin didn't know. The guy who pieced together that life descended generation by generation, shaped by the forces of natural selection and mutation until family lines bifurcated into distinct species? He didn't know where babies came from. And neither did Gregor Mendel when he discovered the laws of inheritance or Mendeleev when he discovered the periodic table of the elements, or Pasteur when he invented vaccines and confirmed the principles of germ theory, or James Clerk Maxwell when he invented color photography. No one, no one in the entire world knew the answer to arguably the most basic and integral question of existence until a year before Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone. 
It's dumbfounding. Imagine being a person in the late 1870s, getting your first look at a telephone. You call up your friend Betsy and say, isn't this amazing? I can hear you all the way from Boston. And Betsy says, you think that's amazing? Did you hear about where babies come from? And you haven't. For thousands of years, the most vital and vexing mystery conceivable sat there tauntingly Every five-year-old the world over had thought to ask it, but until well after the Industrial Revolution, no parent was able to produce a single correct answer. Wrong answers, though. <laughs> That's different. Boy, howdy, is that different. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today, we're looking at the wrong answers and the slow, jerky, juking advancement that eventually got us to the truth. This is a slightly rewritten, entirely re-recorded, and reproduced version of an episode we first aired all the way back in 2018, when The Constant was a wee bitty baby itself. I thought it'd be good to revisit it now for, well, a couple of reasons, the big one I'm keeping close to my chest, but not only do listeners frequently cite this as the episode that got them into the show, this story also provides a good framework for understanding the state of play for some other stories I'm going to be telling in the coming weeks. So, here it is, presented for the first time in high definition, the episode I call, Let's Talk About Sex, Comma, Babies. We've already started at the end, and that won't do. We've got to slow things down somehow. So, allow me to do what any overeager yet insecure American male would do. Think about baseball. And I know that when this episode first aired, people reached out to say I had made some comically simple mistake in my misunderstanding of the rules of baseball, but I still don't know what it was. See if you can catch it. The game hasn't begun yet. Everybody's getting hot dogs, getting beer. While the crowd makes its way to the seats, most of them probably know that babies have something to do with sex. The earliest evidence of this knowledge dates to somewhere around 7,000 BC, in the remnants of an ancient city in modern-day Turkey. In the late 1950s, archaeologists there found a plaque showing a man and woman embracing on one side and a mother with a baby on the other. Most anthropologists think this understanding goes back much, much further to our earliest days of human culture, some 50,000 years ago. But it's not a given. After all, babies don't show up until nine months after sex, and signs of pregnancy take weeks at least. Lots of intervening things could happen in the meantime that might be mistaken as the cause. And that is when pregnancy does occur, which is relatively rare. Under the simplest conceivable understanding of the relationship, you might expect a woman who had sex a hundred times to be saddled with a hundred babies, and that obviously wasn't right. Still, it should have been obvious that sex at least played an important part in procreation. Virgins never grew pregnant, except under suspect circumstances where an unwanted blushing neighbor boy might have been seen scurrying out a window. Not to mention, early people probably could draw the inference from other animals they had contact with. 
One of the main outliers about human sexuality is that it is veiled, hidden. Most animals rut or heat or otherwise display pretty obvious signs that they're ready to get it on. Our ancestors, who might have watched antelope or rabbits or dogs going about their nasty business, would have had a pretty easy time figuring out the cause and effect on the beasts and probably could have intuited that they were cut from similar cloth. Still, as our players take the field and warm up, a good portion of the crowd probably has some seriously wrong-headed beliefs even about the most basic mechanics of the game. Some of them believe that while sex is a prerequisite, the most important thing is to be touched on the head by a ghost or bitten by a fish on the thigh. A lot of them think it's important for a man to be involved, but that more men is all the better. Telegeny, the belief that multiple male partners can contribute to the development of a baby, was widespread in the ancient world and persisted for a long, long time. For some peoples, the idea was that a baby was built over the course of a pregnancy, like packing a big, spermy snowman, and that it was important for the expectant mother to get as much material from as many and as varied partners as possible. Do you want daddy to be the best warrior or the best storyteller? The smartest or the fastest? Why choose? That is the lay of the land as our first batter takes the plate. Hailing from the Greek island of Kos in the 5th century BC, please welcome Hippocrates. Called the father of medicine, generously, but let's not get stuck in the weeds here, Hippocrates is responsible for a very mixed legacy. On the one hand, he was the first person to advocate for physical causes of illness instead of curses and demons. On the other, those physical causes mostly came down to humors, which sent medicine down a 2,500-year dead end. And on our central mystery? His belief was that animal conception was pretty much like plant conception. Which is true, except that Hippocrates didn't understand plant conception either. He didn't know that seeds were the result of fertilization, which is an easy enough thing to misunderstand. But that misunderstanding put him off on a bad foot. His theory for animals and for people was that the male created a seed and the female merely provided the soil from which it could grow. There were a host of problems with this idea, obviously, not least of which was, if all mothers did was serve as an unimportant incubator, then why did so many babies resemble their mothers? Get used to the general framework of that question because it's going to trip up most of our hitters. There was a proposed answer, and it came from another analogy, grapes. Winemakers from before Hippocrates' time understood that grapes grown in different soils produced different sizes, colors, and flavors. So maybe that was a mother's meager influence. It's not very convincing because, as critics pointed out, there was no soil you could plant a grape seed in to grow an apple. Hippocrates goes down swinging, one out. But the seed and field theory lives on. Despite its shortcomings, it becomes one of the three main theories that persists for millennia onward. And that is something that I don't know how to fit into our baseball metaphor, which is another problem that you should get used to. Next at the plate, hailing from Greece by way of Macedonia, your favorite and mine, he once took a strike swinging at a throw to second, it's fucking Aristotle! 
If you've listened to the show before, you probably think you know how this is going to go. Aristotle is going to say something silly and probably offensive, and the whole world is going to blindly agree with him in spite of all reason for a couple thousand years. If that's what you're expecting, then yes, you're largely right. Aristotle could have fouled off all day with the bevy of weird opinions he held around babies. He thought that a fetus's gender was controlled by the direction the wind was blowing, literally, and that newborns didn't get souls until they laughed, which always happened on their hundredth day. Exactly. He also thought that testicles only existed as counterweights to the penis to keep the shaft from getting coiled and snarled like the cords behind your TV. And, as always, his views of women were... ghastly. Because a boy who was castrated failed to develop male secondary sexual characteristics, Aristotle presumed that women were just men castrated in the womb. And that idea of the female as a broken or incomplete and therefore inferior male was a sawhorse Aristotle returned to time and time again. But every once in a while, I am forced to meekly defend Aristotle, and this is as good a time as any. On the question of where babies come from, and uh, let's just call that question generation, because that is what most of antiquity called it. On the question of generation, Aristotle was working with a broken bat, and the pitcher was spitting all over the ball. Consider what he had to work with. He knew that sometimes, after sex, women got pregnant. He knew that men, in the course of sex, produced semen. For most folks of his time, and long after, those were the only givens. Aristotle, though, realized he knew two more things about women. The first was that if the female didn't have a menstrual cycle, she couldn't usually get pregnant. Girls that were too young, or women who were too old, or in some other mysterious way devoid of menses, didn't get knocked up. He also knew that once a woman was with child, her monthly bleeding stopped. This was tantalizing evidence, but of what? Aristotle drew a conclusion that met with the only familiar experience available, and although it was super duper wrong, I have to admit that faced with the puzzle he was, I might have gotten there too. His theory was that menstrual blood was basically like milk, and that semen worked to help it curdle into a fleshy cheese baby. Strike three, two outs. Uh, we should note that neither Aristotle nor Hippocrates were the first or only people to reach their respective conclusions. Throughout the world, we find texts that echo either the seed and soil or the cheese baby ideas. The Old Testament contains both. But it was these two figures who became the spokesmen, the official mascots of their theories. Next up is Galen. Born in Greece in 129 AD, Galen was the most accomplished physician in, well, in all time, at least up until the Enlightenment. He practically invented anatomy, pharmacology, pathology, neurology. Uh-oh, looks like a storm is gathering. Early Christianity is taking firm hold of Rome, and it is not happy about all of this medical investigation and discovery jazz. So we're all hoping Galen can get this at-bat in under the wire. The pitcher waves off a sign from the catcher, 
Galen is attempting to do anatomy in an era where increasingly the fleshy world is looked at as sinful and base. The pitcher makes the throw and it's a hit. Galen appreciates that there must be a primarily biological explanation for the creation of new life. He's rounding first, appreciating that because offspring can resemble either or both parents, both male and female must have an important part in the process. He stumbles a bit on second when he argues that God creates nothing unnecessary and concludes from this that the female orgasm must have a crucial generative function. But he's still running. The ball is going. Going. It could be. It might be. It's caught at the left field wall. What a shame. That's three up, three down, no runs, no bases. The caught line drive that Galen hit went like this. Male and female were mirror images of one another. The vagina was just an inward penis. The ovaries were internal testicles. There was only one sex, but that sex was sometimes popped out and sometimes curled in. I want to be clear, when I say that the ovaries were internal testicles, I mean that literally. That was what they were called, female testicles and Galen's belief was that they produced a female sperm that created a fetus when it mingled with the male kind. Hey, is it worth noting that our dugout is populated exclusively by men? Every player on the whole club. In one sense, that's not surprising. While lots of things are going to change over the course of this game, patriarchy will be our North Star, our constant, our peanuts and cracker jacks. Still, you'd think that Given the obvious familiarity many women had with the issue, one of the many men on this team might have at least asked one a question or two. I'm not saying that excluding women from this deliberation necessarily slowed its progress. Women didn't have access to any special pool of exclusive evidence per se, but it sure as hell wouldn't have hurt. And at the least, we would have avoided century upon century of explanations that took the inferiority of the quote-unquote fairer sex as a given. But alas. There was one hypothetically positive takeaway from Galen's one-sex hypothesis. Women needed pleasure. As opposed to a lot of doctors and thinkers throughout the centuries, Galen believed the female orgasm was crucial to conception. Because the male organ only released its semen with climax, it stood to reason that the female's semen operated the same way. So if you were a husband who wanted a baby, and you definitely did because that was the whole point of everything, you would better take pains to satisfy your wife. Lots of books were written, seminars delivered, teaching sessions offered to make sure men were bringing women to climax. Of course, the negative impact of this theory is still sometimes seen today, that if sex resulted in pregnancy, that was a sign that the woman had consented. Cue that soundbite about legitimate rape here. Like the seed and field theory and the milk baby theory, Galen's one sex idea spread, lasted, and influenced for a long time and way far out. Throughout the first millennium, from England to Germany to Carthage to Persia to India to China, we find rich records of how to fuck like you mean it. Oh, the players are returning to their dugouts, the storm is on, and the groundskeepers are out with the tarp. We've got ourselves a rain delay. Yeah, I don't think the rain delay analogy is working. 
But there's an important shift that begins before Galen dies in 210 AD, and that shift comes basically to dominate the Western world for more than a thousand years. The church thought prying into matters of flesh and blood was indulgent and sinful. Christ was returning any day, no matter how many thousands of days he'd been returning any day for, and when that happened, bodily matters would be made obsolete. The spirit should be man's focus, not earthly things. To many Christians of the first millennium, studying plants or animals or rocks was no different from spending one's time at a strip club. Worse still, examining the human body, let alone its hidden sinful sexual parts. If God had wanted us to know how sex worked, he'd have put it front and center. But he hadn't. Not only were there no outward clues to explain generation, but God had not inspired his author to put the answer to print either. The general view of early Christians was that everything worth knowing had been there for Adam and Eve, and that since the fall, we had only driven ourselves deeper into a wilderness of crowded ignorance. One couldn't create or ascertain new truths because anything new was, on its face, apart from the word of God. The reins of intellectual repression battered the tarp for century upon century. During all this time, there were essentially four answers to our quandary. Hippocrates and his seed and field notion. Aristotle's milk baby, and I know I should stop saying milk baby because it's unsettling, but what can you do? Milk baby, milk baby, milk baby. And Galen's one sex theory. The fourth answer, which was favored by the church and proper Christians, was even simpler. Don't ask that! Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Just when it looked like the game would be called, the clouds parted and our next batter approached the plate. He might have seemed like an unlikely player in our game with his long white hair and beard. He's the Bo Jackson of our story, playing not just in our baseball game, but in math, astronomy, literature, music, science, engineering, and most of all, painting. It's Leonardo da Vinci. In his 40s, da Vinci turned to anatomy. Unlike Galen or Aristotle or Hippocrates, he dissected human bodies, trying to riddle out their secrets. 
and he did a pretty fantastic job given the elementary tools and grime and gore in front of him. It's our first hit of the game. With Da Vinci rounding first, he dissects a convict who has just been hung and discovers that an erect penis is filled with blood, not air, as virtually everyone before him had thought. And if you didn't know that men get erections when they're strangled to death, well now you do. Mazel. Da Vinci keeps running, sketching a dissected woman, five months pregnant, with curled up fetus nestled within her womb, umbilical about its feet. He's safe at second base, having built a repository of detailed anatomical drawings, the likes of which the world had never seen. But the runner is stranded. When da Vinci dies, his notebooks pass from hand to hand, finally making their way to the Royal Library in Winchester Castle, where they sit, basically unread, for the next 300 years. The unnotable artists and royals who overlooked da Vinci's treasure trove make up the next couple of hitters. They whiff it, the inning ends, and Leonardo returns to the bullpen. No runs scored. Batting next for the... Mm, what? The global humans. That's awful. Let's forget about that. If you could also overlook the fact that our innings have no bottoms, that would be nice too. I told you the metaphor strains. Innings have no bottoms. That's close to saying something, isn't it? Let's stay on the lookout for a way to use that phrase. Anyway, next came William Harvey, a British physician of the 1600s. Harvey had a wonderfully detail-oriented mind. He didn't believe in magic and worked to exonerate at least six accused witches, but he's best known for being the first person to figure out that the heart, rather than being the holding place of the soul or the mind or a slow-burning life furnace, was just a pump. In 1651, at age 73, Harvey published On Animal Generation, the result of his long foray into the matter. In it, Harvey finally and fully refuted Aristotle's milk baby, last time I promise, and Galen's one-sex hypotheses. Harvey had spent years examining every form of generation he could come up with, from ostrich eggs to deer embryos to humans. In the end, he reached an incredible conclusion. Omnivivum ex ovo. All life comes from the egg. We're going to call that a single. I know, it feels like a bigger hit than that, but Harvey managed to muck up his advance a bit. For starters, he hadn't actually seen eggs in any mammals, and he still was pretty wrong about what they were. In Harvey's view, eggs grew spontaneously within the womb. The ovaries, which again at this point were simply called female testicles, had nothing to do with it. And the egg itself was, at the start, a completed vessel. Today, we would more accurately call what Harvey was referring to an embryo. Still, it's a start. We're getting into the power part of our lineup, the real heavy hitters. All of them Dutch, weirdly. First to the plate is physician Renier de Graaf. De Graaf is the Ty Cobb of our pench, pissy and irritable. He had a penchant for hurling insults at those he disagreed with, which included nearly everyone. He first gained fame by working out the structure, if not the function exactly, of the testicle. 
What were testicles anyway? Even today we call them balls. But DeGraff created a process in which he would soak a testicle until it opened up like a paper flower, revealing a long strand of unraveling tubules. But it is his eponymous discovery for which he's most famous. DeGraff wanted to find the eggs that Harvey had confidently assured him would be there in mammals. And he kind of succeeded. In his book, he claimed to have seen hosts of eggs within the ovaries of various mammals, cows, sheep, dogs, and a lot of rabbits. Did I say ovaries? Yes, that's right, ovaries, not female testicles. DeGraff confirmed once and for all that the twin structures within mammalian females bore no relation to those within the nutsack. They made eggs, not female sperm. Thus, ovaries. This feels like a home run, right? But no. Unfortunately, while all of these conclusions were spot on, DeGraff had arrived at them sort of sideways. He said he had managed to find eggs within all these ovaries, but he was wrong. What he had seen were what we now call graphene follicles, which hold eggs until they are released. DeGraff had viewed these follicles in rabbits, intently, thinking that they were eggs. Then, he had mated the bunnies and reopened them to check for change. And indeed, some of the follicles had opened. A few days later, he took a look at the wombs. There were as many bunny embryos in the wombs as there were burst follicles in the ovaries. So, he reasonably but wrongly concluded he had seen the eggs. There's another reason we can't give DeGraff better than a base hit, though, and that's that he, like Harvey, both believed that the egg held the whole shebang. Semen played some catalyzing role in inspiring it to get to work, but otherwise served no purpose and contributed no materials. In fact, neither of them believed that semen ever came into physical contact with the eggs. They hypothesized that whatever part ejaculate played in pregnancy, it was roughly akin to magnetism, working at a distance. So, let's call that a bunt. I know, that's not very generous, but I'm really married to this stupid baseball analogy now, and I've got to work it out somehow. There's a man on first, and a man on second, and our third power hitter is up. Jan Swammerdam. Another Dutchman, I know. I am as confused as you are. As he approaches the plate... He drops the bat and begins weeping uncontrollably. The coach is trying to console him into playing. Wait, there's a coach now? No, no, let's not kick up that mud. The point is, Swammerdon was deeply religious, and he held to that rain delay idea that studying earthly bodies was sinful. He should be only studying and praising God, and every moment not spent in prayer racked Jan with guilt. At one point in 1673, he disappeared with a Flemish mystic, cloistering himself from temptation. But he was back in Amsterdam by 1676. In spite of himself, and in spite of the threat of eternal damnation, Swammerdam just couldn't stop himself from studying insects. He loved them. He just loved them so much. And his at-bat will be spent on them, because Swammerdam's batting for butterflies. In 1669, he cut open a caterpillar and found within it the limbs and wings of the butterfly it would someday become. 
Well, not that caterpillar. That caterpillar was dead. But other caterpillars would become butterflies, and they already had all the necessary parts. Up until then, the assumption was that butterflies were born out of dead caterpillars, that they were separate life forms. But Swammerdam knew better. And he knew that, in part, because of a recent invention, the microscope. Swammerdam gets a single two. From his studies of insects, he furthered the notions laid down by his preceding hitters. Now, there was the beginning of a way to understand how complicated things came from simpler ones. Silkworm to moth, egg to child. That leaves the bases loaded for Antony von Leeuwenhoek, our fourth Dutchman. Leeuwenhoek, Leeuwenhoek, Leeuwenhoek. Can I just call him Tony? Tony wasn't a scientist. Not formally, at least. He had no university training. He couldn't speak or read Latin. He was a businessman. He owned a textile store in Delft, and he wanted to get a better look at the quality of his thread. But the magnifying glasses available to him were only so good. So Tony started making his own lenses, and soon enough, his own microscopes. In the late 1600s, Tony basically invented microscopy an invention he didn't share easily. His fellow Dutch teammates sitting on base, for instance, would have loved to get a taste of his microscopes, but no dice. Tony put everything he could find under the lens, pond water and vinegar and dental plaque and fleas and diarrhea, yeah, you heard me, and most interesting to us, semen. One night, upon completing coitus with his wife, no word on whether Tony here hoved to that galeny notion that you've got to please the woman, Tony... Well, there's no nice way to say this, so let's not bother trying. He splooged in his hand. Then he leapt up, grabbed his microscope. Through it, he saw a world of tiny, teeming creatures. Animalcules, he called them. Millions. Leeuwenhoek was, right then, the first person to ever see sperm. And what did he think about that? Meh. Yeah, meh. Take that, Jad and Robert. That's dated now. Whatever you may have heard on Radiolab, Tony didn't think finding sperm was any big deal, and he certainly didn't connect the discovery with reproduction. He'd seen tons of tiny, wriggling creatures in everything he'd ever taken a look at. Yes, including the diarrhea. So what was the big whoop? No, Tony assumed that sperm were just some sort of parasite that lived in semen. And that first response became pretty widely held throughout the world for the next couple centuries. To be fair, Leeuwenhoek didn't continue to hold it. Er, that view, I mean, not the semen. He stopped holding the semen presumably within the hour. He stopped holding his initial view of semen within a couple of years. He came to believe that there was something special about semen as a whole, even if he discounted the sperm themselves, and he wrote the Royal Society to tell them as much. They responded, saying that de Graaf and Harvey had both concluded that it was eggs which were important to reproduction. And what did he think of that? Well, he didn't much like it, is what he thought of that. And so, he set about proving that semen, not eggs, were the crucial element of generation. While taking a microscope to the reproductive tract of a recently boinked dog, Tony saw the sperm again, though he could not see any semen. So he quickly did an about-face and declared that sperm were the big thing. Not semen, not eggs, sperm. He didn't know how they would do it, but he knew that somehow six or seven of the million sperm within the dog would grow into puppies. 
Well, not the sperm, because he'd killed the dog. But, you know, in principle, this is how we first snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. As Tony Van Leeuwenhoek winds up to hit a dinger, a fight breaks out. Swammerdam and de Graaf never got along in the first place, but it's the spitting between Leeuwenhoek and the others that manages to truly clear the bench. For the next hundred years, the game was held up by a grudge match between those who championed the sperm and those who stood up for the egg. You'd think someone might have successfully brokered a compromise, but no, it had to be one or the other, egg or sperm. The spermists didn't believe there even were eggs in mammals, while the ovists held that sperm was just some distant magnetic catalyst that got eggs going. So set on their infighting, they didn't even question some basic problems with both ideas. Namely, heredity again. If only the egg were important, why did some babies have daddy's eyes? If only the sperm, why did they have mommy's nose? Not only did the rivals fail to answer these questions, but they went even further down the absurd rabbit hole into a truly obnoxious idea that held court for more than a century. Preformationism. There was already a butterfly inside the caterpillar. So, it was argued, there was already a human in the egg or the sperm, depending on what side you're rooting for. Here, again, was the thumbprint of religion. Creation was the exclusive mandate of God, not people and dogs and rabbits and fleas. The act of sexual congress was base and gross and sinful. How could two people humping behind a dumpster, I'm not trying to sex shame here, hump behind all the dumpsters you want if that's your thing, but please be safe, rival the majesty of God? It was ridiculous, conceited, prideful to suggest such a thing. But the most obvious alternative was also pretty uncomfortable. That God was watching every dirty coital performance and interjecting himself somehow in the crucial climactic moment. No, untenable. God isn't a pervert. Although some of that Old Testament stuff, no, no, it can't be. Preformationism, then, was a great way out. At the time of creation, in Eden, God had created not just all of the animals in the garden, and not just Adam and Eve, but all the animals that will ever be, and all of Adam and Eve's descendants down the line until Revelation. Inside of every woman, there are eggs, and inside each egg is another woman, except for the ones with men in them, but give it a second, and that woman is also full of eggs, which are also full of women, which are full of eggs, which are full of women, and so on and so on, from the beginning of time until the end of all things. It was truly a, ready? Bottomless inning. Hmm. No, it didn't even work six years ago. Or, if you were a spermist, it was the same, but with tiny little people in the head of each sperm. Exactly the same, except for one major problem. In each ejaculation, there are 200 million or so sperm. And even in the most ideal of circumstances, that ejaculation produced one baby. Maybe two. What about all the others? Why would God sentence the whole of the population of Brazil to die every time people bone? How could that be part of his design? It was a cruel idea, and more than that, it was useless, purposeless, 
and nothing in God's creation was without purpose. The spermists tried to wiggle their way out of this conundrum, but they couldn't. Some proposed that maybe those sperm which did not go on to become children instead got transferred to the child, or else maybe they were ejected out into the air as fine mist that eventually came to rest in other men to be ejaculated later. Pretty weak tea. So the influence of the spermists fell. Never completely away, particularly because of Lewenhoek, his prestige and his microscopes, but the ovists were winning the war. Yet, it was set to be a Pyrrhic victory. For all the focus on proving their side right, nobody was doing much to further the cause of actually getting things right. Particularly, again, that question of inheritance. If God had created all the creatures of the world in one fell swoop and nested them within one another by the millions, then why did children take after their parents at all, let alone both of their parents? And why were there birth defects, miscarriages? Briefly, if this was the way of the world, why did the world look like something so entirely different? Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. With our runners exhausted from punching one another and still no score on the board, our next player takes the plate in a fresh inning. Pierre-Louis Moreau de Maupertuis, 
director of the Academy of Sciences in Paris. In 1750, Pierre went to Germany, where he'd heard about a peculiar family. The children in this family had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. And so did the parents, and the grandparents, and the great-grandparents. The whole lineage was besought with polydactylism. What were the odds that that had happened by chance, from all those godly nesting dolls the ovists and spermists insisted upon? Maupertuis could tell you. He did the math. He put the odds at one to several trillion. Impossible. More importantly, the extra digits passed down the family line on the mother's side and the father's. Nobody had a theory to explain that, even though it was just an extension of the same question everybody had been asking for hundreds of years. How come babies look like both parents? Maupertuis takes the plate with a new theory, that both male and female contributed material to the production of offspring. Nobody had said anything like that in the better part of a hundred years. But a lot of Pierre's idea was older than that. He believed there were two sperms, after all, male and female. It was Galen all over again, but this time a tiny bit sciencier. The sperm of male and female were made up of little bits from all over their respective bodies. During sex, those little pieces, a tiny bit of nose from the father, a little bit of eye color from the mother, were drawn together by gravity. Gravity was all the rage in 1750, until a new being was formed from the component parts of both parents. This, this, this was really close. Maupertuis thought the particles from each parent might be passed on in a dormant form over generations, so that curly hair or blue eyes could skip a generation but then come roaring back. He also explained birth defects, you can probably piece together how that worked, and other such imperfections that were impossibly difficult for preformationists. Let us call that a double from Maupertuis. The specifics of how this all worked were his, but a lot of other biologists, physicians, and other scientists were coming to similar conclusions. Their school would be called the epigenesists, and they'd take on the preformationists. But this was all done basically in thought experiments and arguments. Nobody could devise much in the way of an experimental or observational framework to prove themselves right. So the whole debate went dark. It was a war of attrition that ground into an exhausted armistice. Pockets of fighting kicked off here and there, but for the most part, people just gave up. We'd reached the end of what microscopes and anatomy and experiments could tell us. For the next 20 years, batters swung themselves stupid, striking out and stranding Maupertuis at second. There was one great exception to the dead period that followed, though. Lazzaro Spallanzani, an Italian priest and biologist with an incredible creative capacity for making experiments. He took up the generation riddle by looking at frogs, whom he observed and determined to be copulating externally. The male frog mounts the female, she spills her eggs, he ejaculates onto them, and the two go about their merry ways. 
up until Spallanzani confirmed this, no one believed it was possible for sex to happen out in the open. And now that he knew it did, Spallanzani developed an experiment that was as ingenious as it was adorable. Frog boxer shorts. Spallanzani sewed tiny little frog boxers that he fit upon half of his males. Then he left them, pantsed and pantsless both, to copulate with the lady frogs. As you might expect, the eggs from the females who had boinked the bareback boys developed into tadpoles. The eggs that had only been held under guys coming in their shorts didn't. Then, Spallanzani took a little bit from the messy underpants and rubbed it on some of the unfertilized eggs. Miracle of miracles, they developed and hatched. The pitcher releases the ball, Spallanzani hits. It's way out, way out. He's going right past first, rounding second, and he finds his way safely to third. A triple for Spallanzani. With one brilliant and again, adorable experiment, Spallanzani bested just about everyone. De Graff and Swammerdam, who thought that semen activated eggs from a distance as by magnetism, wrong, it's got a touch. All the ovists and spermists who thought one or the other alone were the answer, wrong-o, you needed both. Maupatouille with his revamped Galenite two-semen notion? Nope. Obviously, eggs went with semen, not more semen. Spallanzani went on to perform other experiments, inseminating dogs and moths and learning all kinds of neat stuff. He was great. He was just great. Except that he missed one thing. Like Lewenhoek had thought in those first few months after he spied them, Spallanzani didn't think sperm had anything to do with any of this. He thought, like many did, that they were some unrelated parasite. Like tapeworms of the penis. Hey, another image for you to treasure. You're welcome. Spallanzani does his frog boxer trick in the 1780s, and then resumes the radio silence of listless cluelessness. There's a meeting on the mound that goes on for more than 40 years. It wasn't until 1827 that our next batter took the plate, in what is finally our final inning. His name was Karl Ernst von Baer. An Estonian explorer, scientist, meteorologist, biologist, imagine the student loans on all these guys, von Baer dissected the ovary of a dog, as many of his predecessors had, and he searched by microscope, as many of his predecessors had. But he did both together, and he did both well. And that is how he came to find what, over a century before, de Graff had thought he found, a mammalian egg. Von Baer went on to find eggs in all kinds of mammals, including, importantly, people. All life comes from the egg, for real this time. But Von Baer, like Spallanzani, also believed that sperm were parasites, so he gets a powerful hit on the third base line, but it's thrown back and he lands on first base. Spallanzani remains at third. Bottom of the ninth, man at first, man at third. Up to bat comes Rudolf Virchow, the Prussian physician who finally put the concept of humorism to bed. That's the second mention of humorism. Uh, if you don't know that story, you can go back and take a listen to Take None of These and Call Me in the Morning. That's one of our first episodes. We should probably remake that one at some point because it's got to sound like crap. Virchow's contribution to the generation riddle is indirect yet essential. 
1855, he published a book with an epigram, Omnis Cellula e Cellula. All cells come from cells. A few years before, a biologist named Schwann and a botanist named Schleiden had figured out that both plants and animals seemed to be composed of cells. That put folks on the scent of any great number of biological mysteries. What makes up life? What powers life? But Virchow is the one who put together how living things grow. Cell division. Finally, a viable alternative to the preformationists and epigenesists. You didn't have to have a medley of tiny body parts pulled together, and you didn't need all life pre-existing in near-finished form. Cells could divide into multiple parts, with each containing all necessary stuff to sustain themselves. And there was another big hint here, one that would push us right up to the brink. If all living things were made of cells, then maybe eggs were cells too. And even more crucially, maybe sperm were cells. Base is loaded. I know, I know. Why isn't Spallanzani running? Because I want the bases loaded for this and shut up about it already. Up to the plate comes an unlikely hero, a German biologist named Oskar Hertwig, who languished under the shadow of his more successful and esteemed brother, Richard. Richard was a professor in Berlin. Richard discovered cell mitosis and meiosis. Richard was a bigwig. Oscar, by contrast, was banished to the hinterlands. Well, Naples. Seems like a pretty fantastic and temperate hinterlands, but scientifically, it was a lower rung. When he arrived, he didn't even know what he was supposed to study. No one seemed to much care. His station was cheap enough to run, so whatever he and his fellow scientists worked out was fine. It didn't take long for inspiration to strike. The local fishermen were constantly hauling up their favorite delicacy, a delicious marine treat that Hertwig and his fellow scientists came to enjoy. Sea urchin eggs. Delicious, delicious sea urchin eggs. But while scarfing them down, Oscar realized that they were more than just delicious, they were transparent. You could see right into them. In 1875, Oscar plopped a sea urchin egg in front of his microscope, settled into view, and then squirted a little bit of urchin sperm onto the slide. You know what he saw, because you have seen it. Certainly on film, television, maybe even in a biology class. But up until that spring afternoon, no one in all of history ever had. Every child, since we were huddled in caves, every philosopher, every scientist, every frustrated potential parent, Aristotle and Galen and Darwin and Henry, all of them, everyone, had spent their lives fumbling aimlessly and frustrated in the dark. Simple as could be, plunk, Oscar Herwig found the light switch. A sperm wriggled up, penetrated the egg, and just like that, the two cells became one. He watched, then, as this new fused cell divided into two, and those two into four, and so on and so forth. He conducted the experiment over and over. What would happen if he separated the two cells after the first division? Ta-da! Now he knew where twins came from. Forget the baseball metaphor. This was like magic. This was the veil torn back. This was the secret of life revealed on a nondescript day in a nondescript lab to the lesser of two brothers. We don't need baseball to show how exciting this was. 
On the other hand, there's nothing like a grand slam in the ninth. Music for today's episode provided by Blue Dot Sessions, Lee Rosevere, Poddington Bear, and Anime is Trash. Remember Anime is Trash? Ah, the salad days. Special thanks go out to all our patrons who make the constant possible. A whole lot of you listeners have signed up to fill in the ranks recently, for which I am eternally grateful. A very special thanks goes out to Paul Glesson, Phil Boyce, Justin Hamilton, Melissa Summers, Vincent Dill, Laura M., Andrew Larson, Rachel Cleary, Ivan Woner, Gamer Gal, Debbie Chambers, Jason Petrie, and Mary Frances Sturby Chang for their support. If you would like to join them and stand upon the Constance Wall in our defense, you can do so by visiting patreon.com slash the constant. For two bucks an episode, just $4 a month tops, you'll get early and ad-free access to new episodes as well as monthly bonus content and the warm, satisfied feeling of knowing you're carrying this show into the future. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, which... Would you believe nobody thought to name their baby Chicago until 1995? You would? Well, me too, I guess. This has been The Constant.